Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Michael Fishbane is the Nathan Cummings Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. And he is perhaps one of the most original, creative, and daring Jewish thinkers uh, and scholar that we have today. I say daring because few scholars um, would attempt a Jewish theology, which is the subtitle of this marvelous book, Sacred Attunement, a Jewish theology and our day. Um, I will not read um, anything that's in the program. Uh, it is sufficient here, I think, to underscore one persistent theme that I have seen in uh, many, if not all, of his books and scholarly articles, where he has sought to always in place, um, in contemporary, in place contemporary Judaism in the heritage of the Hebrew Bible. The importance of this uh, scholarly and existential focus is vouchsafed by the extraordinary uh, response that his works have garnered over the years. The title of his talk, as you know, is uh, intriguing. It's really intriguing. Um, you have that sacred attunement. And then, for me, the most intriguing part is the subtitle, which is Judaism and the Cultivation of Mindfulness in the Everyday. It's a wonderful pleasure, Michael, to have you back in Santa Barbara. Uh, and uh, I'd like all of us to join in uh, welcoming Professor Michael Fishbane to Santa Barbara. I thought I would begin uh, by uh, sharing with you a very intriguing narrative that we first uh, find in 13th century Jewish uh, mystical and philosophical sources. Uh, it probably comes initially um, from uh, Islamic Sufi sources that came into Judaism uh, in the uh, 12th and 13th century and may even go back to um, uh, Greek antiquity, maybe even to parts of some of the Platonic materials, and there are parallels even in India. So what is this narrative? Uh, the narrative uh, recounts a beggar bedraggled, standing on the road, uh, somewhere, anywhere. And as he's coming, uh, standing on the road, uh, the coach of a great princess is coming down the road. Uh, and she sees this bedraggled person, and she stops the wagon, uh, and she says, what do you want? Uh, and he looks at her, and he's astonished by her resplendent beauty and is filled with all kinds of erotic desire and he says, I want you. And she looks at him and she says, um, you'll have me when the two of us meet in the cemetery. <laughs> so she's trying to blow him off, obviously. But, of course, in his own state of mind, he took her quite literally. And he goes to the cemetery. And he develops this single-minded focus 
on the princess. And he thinks of the princess's face. And then he abstracts from the face to the princess's eyes. And from the princess's eyes to the notion of sublime beauty. And from beauty, he begins to focus on the more abstract concept. And gradually, he becomes so transfixed by the notion of beauty that he utterly forgets the desire of his body, the whole notion of eros. And as the narrative describes, all kinds of people came to him and they saw this sheikh um, in the uh, cemetery and would ask him, all of these questions and uh, received holy answers and he was in an altered state totally transfixed by her beauty. Now, obviously, we have a very interesting structure. Right? We have the structure of desire and the structure of beauty. We have the structure of the man, the woman on the road And then he misunderstands her statement, which is really a blow-off. And he goes to the cemetery, the place of absolute impurity. And he focuses on this transcendent notion of beauty. And as his mind settles on the notion of beauty, and it isolates itself as a transfixing notion, he's able to transcend himself from the notion of physical desire, and he becomes transformed through what we would today call ascetic or spiritual practices, which he never intended. It starts off as desire, and through this form of physical and mental isolation, he becomes a different person. Now here we already see the power of meditation, the relationship between meditation and mental focalization, the relationship between those two aspects and physical desire, and purification through self-transformation. And we'll come back to this larger thematic in the course of the history of Judaism and a whole variety of practices that were developed over 2,000 years. But already I would begin to say that one of the great tasks of the history of religion, and we already see this from archaic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is to guide its practitioners through specific practices to a certain mode of consciousness, to develop a certain mode of what today is often called mindfulness, to a heightened awareness about certain types of qualities, and also to transform the self from the natural self into a spiritual self. So there are two aspects often that history of religions work, and that is to begin to develop the mind to be able to focus on specific elements, and then to take the natural self and to transfigure the natural self into a spiritual or supernatural or transformed self. And usually the focus on these elements is a focus uh, on something that has to do with the higher values of that specific religion, whether it's the good or it's a certain form of right-mindedness 
or it's a certain form of love and desire. But the important point is, is that the history of religions guide people not simply to abstract ideas, not simply to disembodied ideas, but to the embodiment of these in ritual practices in the everyday and the transfiguration of the self through those practices. Now, if we step back a little bit and we begin to see this in natural terms and then develop this into the larger framework of religion, we begin to see that the natural self swings between two poles. It swings between the pole of inwardness, what we call the inner self, and the pole of the environment, what the Germans often call the Umwelt, the surrounding world. And the self swings between this self-centeredness, the centeredness in the self, and the larger world. It's certainly a balance that begins in childhood and takes place all the way through all the stages of the life cycle. Just think of the child's balance between inner wetness and dryness, between hunger and satiation, between lack of touch and touch. And the child, already from the very beginning, is moving between one pole and the other and beginning to find a certain kind of balance, an attunement, an alignment, a certain form of regulation. And as the person develops, one of the functions of education, and certainly one of the transformational features in the history of education and the life cycle, is to begin to develop different ways in which the inner self and the outer world co-regulate, or balance, or in alignment, or in different kinds of regulations. So if a person is growing up and is maximally filled with desire, the pole is when is the outside world of desire, when is it appropriate? What is the place of that space of desire? When a person is getting older and a person is beginning to develop certain forms of educational qualities or begins to think in terms of value, the issue is how much does one focus on self, self-centeredness, or other-centeredness? So we can begin to see over the course of a lifetime different stages develop as one begins to try to find that balance. And if one side is hardened, whether it's the inner side of self-centeredness or need or self-reference, then there's a blockage between the external. And if the external hardens and it is not in a living, dynamic uh, relationship with the outside and inside world, then there's a loss of the self or there's an overinvestment or there's a bleeding into the outside. And teachers, sacred books, and particularly religions try to redress that balance in terms of what is appropriate under the circumstance, what is, the, what is age appropriate, and what is spiritually appropriate. Now, naturally, at various stages, and we can think of this at the psychological level, at the psychological level, we talked a moment ago about emotional adjustment, adjustment in terms of desire and need. The same thing happens at the level of hygiene and the, bi the biological level. And then as we move to the larger level of ethics and values and the level of religion and spiritual focus, 
It's again the question, how much of the self and how is the self related to the mystery of the world? Now the self naturally becomes disoriented and the self loses focus or the mind wanders. Or if the mind doesn't wander, the mind becomes self-absorbed or what we normally talk about is being on automatic pilot in a kind of mindless state. Now the history of religions speak of two kinds of ways in which the self that has become absorbed in mindless routine or habit or become fixed on the inner self or become totally absorbed in the external self is radically charged and brought back to a different form of consciousness. One, which I would just want to mention very briefly, and then we're going to talk about the spiritual techniques that are developed. One is when something happens in our life, which we would call a rupture, or I've called in my book a caesura. We know the word caesura from music. It's a kind of break. Something happens, whether that happens because of a person that we meet or a book that we read or a person who dies or some radical thing that happens in the world of nature. Something happens and the cover is ripped away. And what opens up is that whole vast nature of being that we've tried to cover up in the normal course of our life, which then requires a whole new period of readjustment. Those of you who are Jewish would certainly be able to identify with such a notion during the seven days of mourning that happen in the normal course when a person dies. According to Jewish ritual, during that period of time, the individual is excused from various routine forms of prayer, is excused from certain forms of personal human interaction. A person does not uh, initiate, the, only the mourner initiates conversation. The whole point of that period is to bring the person back into a balance with life and with persons that has been radically ruptured and altered and the person has somehow faced what we would call the abyss or the meaninglessness or we become aware of what would be the contingency of things. And the great religions structure these not only in terms of rites of passage but those boundary moments, those uh, limit moments that the philosopher Kali Jasper spoke about is when we come to a limit and we begin to see how contingent and tenuous things are and how we have rebuilt our life. And the person re-enters into the world by trying to re-establish this boundary of the inner and the outer. Now the point that I want to begin to turn to now is that there's a second point, not when the rupture happens from without. There's a radical break. But the way religions cultivate an inner cultivation of the inner self so that the self is constantly attuned and focused and spiritually directed towards spiritual qualities and creates that kind of balance between the inner and the outer. Three terms appear throughout the history of Jewish spiritual literature. One term is the term called hachana. It's what in the Christian literature is the preparatio. It's a preparation. One doesn't change 
spiritual heights simply by it happening, but it requires a kind of work. The word that we talk about is asceticism, really in Greek as eschesis, means work. It's spiritual labor. It's focused spiritual labor that requires a long period of time. Related to that in the history of Judaism is a second term called hanhaga. It's moving from preparation to regularization of the practice, that the preparation has to now enter into a spiritual routine. And the third, which will lead us to where we're going, is a term called kavana, which we would translate as intention, as focus, as mind-directedness. Sometimes the rabbis speak about kivenet libo, that it's the heart, which is the seat of the emotions in the ancient world. The seat of uh, direction is never located in the mind, but it's located uh, in the heart. Now, there are this, the first place that this begins to develop in the history of Judaism is in the context of prayer, because prayer becomes the place of what we'd call it's a rite of passage, Prayer being done three times a day, but particularly the morning prayer is the place in which one begins to work through certain types of focaling techniques, focus, focusing or what are called focalizing techniques uh, in uh, psychiatry or psychology, uh, and then that brings the person into the everyday. We find in one of the earliest rabbinic texts in the Mishnah that deals with prayer that the, what are called the Hasidim Rishonim, the earliest pietist, used to sit for one hour before the prayer and one hour after the prayer. And according to Maimonides, the Hayu Shohim, they would settle themselves. They would enter a certain kind of new breathing techniques. By the 13th century, the great commentator Maimonides said, it's the isolation of the mind to let go of thoughts and let go of attachments into the everyday so that the focus of the prayer has already let go the normal things that one brings into the everyday. Now, in some cases, this requires something that is called hitbodidut. Now, the word hitbodidut is a very interesting term because it not only means isolation of the mind, that things have to be let go within the mind, but also means isolation of things in the body. This same great commentator, Maimonides, in the 13th century, towards the end of his great guide of the perplexed, says in, uh, near the end of Book 3, he quotes the phrase from the Song of Songs, Al Mishkavi Balayla, I sought God, when I was lying on my bed. He lived a very active life, and before going to sleep at night, he practiced what was called hitbodidut, may have even come in from Sufi practices, where he lies in bed, isolates his mind, focuses his mind on the notion of divine oneness, and tries to separate from the experiences of desire. In other practices, this term hitbodidut actually has the quality, we know this from one of the most famous of the 19th century Hasidic masters, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, might be a name that's known to a number of you, he used to go into the forest or go into caves. And he practices two forms of what are called hitvodidut. 
One is to go into the cave or into the forest and scream out what would be called a mantra. And he, his man, particular mantra was Ribono Shalolam, Master of the Universe. It becomes a term like in medieval Christianity, the Jesus Prayer, that would be recited over and over again so that the mind becomes single focused on a very particular notion, that is to say, the directedness of the self towards the master of the universe. But in other cases, according to Rabbi Nachman, all that can be done is the voiced, voiceless prayer, this gasp, the groan, because the purpose of the groan, just as the purpose of this ribono shalolam, or as he would have recited in Eastern European dialect, ribono shalolam, the whole purpose of that is to begin to separate oneself from normal desire, from normal feelings, and to begin to place oneself as radical creaturehood. Not to be filled with a sense of self, but to be filled with the radical notion of creaturehood. Now this practice would be done as well in the context of prayer. And I want to give you a couple of examples of this notion of prayer. Some of you may have heard of the, of, of the great Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name from 18th and early 19th century Hasidism. He used a very, had a very interesting technique because Jewish prayer, of course, is very verbal, very word-oriented. And in commenting on the passage about Noah going into the ark, it says that Noah went into the ark. Now in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, the word ark means teva. By a very interesting pun, the rabbinic word for word is different from some of you who know it from modern Hebrew milah, but it's teva. He developed a technique that the person has to enter into each word and to enter into a kind of focusing technique with each word and to begin to allow the imagery and the form of that word to shine forth. It also says in that passage uh, in Deuteronomy that they, you should build a kind of light, a place of light and a window so that the light will shine through. And he taught that one has to open oneself up to each word so that there's a shining down of light. So each word is now, you understand that it's a breaking up of what we would call normal breathing rhythms. It's a breaking up of normal syntax. And it's a kind of isolation so that the mind is absolutely and singularly directed in a kind of metasyntactic way, beyond the normal focus on what these words mean in everyday speech, so that the mind can be utterly directed on a transcendent or divine source. In the 13th century, there also developed a very interesting ways in which this was done in the context of divine names. Um, the same person who reports that tradition about the beggar and the princess developed a language of what is called chiseling or drawing the divine name, the tetragram, what comes into the King James as Jehovah, in one's inner eye. That is to say, you pull aside the various segments around the four-letter name, you chisel that as an aura of light, and that the inner eye is to focus on that divine name which keeps the person centered uh, and focused. In other cases, 
this focusing on the divine name is a way of channeling energy, beginning with different names of the hidden and unknowable name of God to the name of God that flows down through being to what is called uh, Adonai, which is a name in which God takes up a kind of living presence uh, in the world. All of these are forms of isolation. But then there could be ways in which playing with various letters in the course of the, of the prayer service also becomes ways of transfiguring the self. Let me just give you two different techniques in which this was done. One technique was to begin the prayer service. The beginning of the prayer service, the self is focused on the notion of I or ego. Those of you who know Hebrew know one of the, the word, one of the classical words for I is ani, aleph, nun, yud. And in the process of the prayer, the individual, by focusing on that term and transpositions of the letters, turns the letters aleph, nun, yud from ani, ego, to ayin, which is the hidden, unknowable God. That is to say, you begin with the self, and in the process of moving the letters, one begins to direct consciousness towards that higher source and not on the inner sense of the self. There's another technique that was used, again, for this kind of focusing uh, of practice. Many of you have seen in Jewish ritual garments, at least in the older forms of the tassels that are on the prayer shawls, would have a blue cord. In Numbers 15, this is called a patil techelet, a kind of blue uh, cord. We no, no longer know what that color was. It was originally from the Murex um, uh, uh, um, sort of um, sh uh, uh, shellfish that was in uh, uh, the Can Canaanite region. But in reading the prayer in uh, Numbers 15, it says, when you are holding the tassels, it says, Ure'item oto. Uzechartem et kol mitzvotai. Now, at one level, this is already a biblical technique that was developed. That is to say, in the course of prayer, one takes the tassels, looks at the specific blue cord, and sees it, the blue cord, and thinks and recalls. We're going to come back to this notion of recollection, what St. Augustine called recollatio, that you begin to think of all the commandments and it becomes a focusing technique. But already Rabbi Meir, the great Rabbi Meir in the Babylonian Talmud, developed a very different technique. Daringly, he doesn't read oto as referring to the specific cord, it, but referring to God. That is to say, when you look at the blue cord in the course of the prayer, because the custom would be to look at it. Today, sometimes people kiss it. it says, you look at it, and you think of the letter blue. Blue reminds you of the blue of the sea. Blue then is then associated with the blue of the sky. The elevation is also a spiritual elevation. And then the blue becomes associated with the color of the sapphire, which according to ancient tradition was the crystalline color that was under the divine throne. So Uri'item Oto now becomes a focusing technique on God 
God's hidden being as king or transcendent sovereign of the universe. You can see how even a technique that itself was a recollection to get one's mind back in, in focus on the commandments is now turned into a focusing technique that through the imagery of elevation, don't forget, it's not as if God is high and not low or is not east and not west. But when we think of images of elevation, we think of something higher, transcendent, more spiritual. Uh, and in this raising of consciousness through colors, through color techniques, and we have in Jewish uh, rituals also many prayer books that were not only circles as mantra, but were color-coded so that one would focus uh, all the way uh, up those uh, various techniques. Let me give uh, one more uh, aspect and then bring this into the practice of the uh, everyday. Again, the whole purpose of the prayer service was to bring the self as an embodied self towards God and spirituality. And since antiquity, particularly in the Middle Ages, the morning prayer service has four aspects of it, and each aspect is the cultivation of the mind, not simply for the experience of prayer, but for the mind that's going to go out into the everyday, as we will see momentarily. So the prayer service begins with what is called the Birchot HaShachar. The morning prayers begin to focus on the re-recognition of the self as an embodied being. The re-recognition of the self as having mind or soul and spirit. And the second stage is what is called the Pesuke de Zimra, the chorale of sound, of, of praise. But the second section of the service, which begins after the focusing on the, on the self as body, begins to focus uh, on the world of creation. All the psalms that are chosen in the second section of the morning service are the psalms of creation that begin to lead the self out of the body towards the created world. The third part of the service, many of you know, is related to the Shema and its blessings. That is to say, the mind now moves beyond the created world towards the unseen unity that lies behind it. And there were many, many focusing techniques, and we can perhaps talk about them in the question period, of how to recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which was a meditative technique that would begin to bring the self beyond the natural world towards a higher level of consciousness, now beyond creation, into something higher. The fourth and highest level is what is often called the standing prayer. Those of you who know Hebrew, it's the Amidah, the or the Shemona Esrei, the 18 benedictions. In this particular prayer, the self has ascended to a higher state of consciousness and has to focus now not only on the process upward, but to imagine the downflow of energy and how one would bring that energy back down uh, into the world. Now before we turn to the commandments and how this is done, I would just add one other phrase so that you understand that it's not, nothing of, like this is ever automatic and already a term developed which are called machshavot zarot. We call it mind wandering or displacement or scattered mind. The rabbis call this 
the foreign thoughts. Like when you're looking at me and you're thinking about business or what's on your apps or on your computers or what you have to do later, your mind is shifting. And that, of course, happens to everybody not only when they're reading and they're talking to someone, but it also happens when a person is in the course of prayer. And since prayer is the archetypal act in which a person tries to learn how to settle consciousness, that is where these techniques were developed. So, for example, if in the course of events a person begins to think about business and need, techniques were developed, what we would today call sublimation, of how to take that thought and not to displace it, but to take that thought and to transform it into a higher value. That is to say, giving and care for all the needy. Or if a person immediately has some kind of sexual desire or mind wanders to some kind of a need or an urge, the rabbis develop techniques of how to turn that erotic thought back into love of other people and to transfigure it and to stay with it and not just to kind of let it pass out of mind, but to stay with it because that energy is real powerful energy to come back uh, into the world uh, itself. Now this brings me to um, uh, a further part of what I wanted to talk about. We've been seeing how the prayer service tries to recenter the mind, get the mind focused on itself as an embodied soul that lives in the world and is trying to raise its consciousness to higher levels. And the whole function of the daily prayer service is this ascesis, this ascetic practice, this work at focalizing, this work at mind training, so that when one leaves the prayer service, one has at least for a short period of time been transformed, and hopefully that will become an inner meditation. That is why even today, and maybe I can talk about some examples in the question period, there's a focus on the recitation of six forms of recollection, some of which are like the Muslim notion of the dhikr and the recollection, but the whole notion is to bring one's mind back to an archetypal structure of consciousness so that that becomes deeply embedded in the mind and the self and the body, and that becomes part of the spiritual naturalness of the self as the self goes into the world. Now, in a religion like Judaism, which is so deeply focused on action and so deeply focused on performative actions uh, and what are called the commandments, or in Hebrew are called the mitzvot, the whole purpose of this is to begin to develop modes of attunement to all the aspects of the world. And beginning in the Middle Ages, they developed this notion, which actually goes back earlier, that all of the 248 so-called positive commandments are all related to different features of the body. There are things you can only do with your eye and the things you can only do with your ear. The things you can only do with your hands and things you can only do with your legs. And each commandment or each mitzvah or each piece of what the rabbis called halacha 
are particularly focused on transforming the body into a spiritual vessel so that what comes into your sphere, this outer sphere we talked about as the umwelt, from the inner sphere, the outer sphere that comes into contact, you handle it the right way because not everything you do with your hand has to push, sometimes it has to pull, sometimes it has to find the right attunement and balance in different circumstances, how much you push and how much you pull, how much you lead with your eyes and how much you receive with your eyes. That's why, for example, for Judaism and other techniques, breathing is so important. Because breathing becomes this archetypal action of outer and inner. And in many of these techniques, the breath out and the breath in is not only birth and death, birth and death, and beginning to let go and to bring the world in and let the world out, but it is this attunement to how hard you breathe out, because also when you speak, what is the force of the language that goes out, and what is the force of the world that you bring in? So it's not just breath, but it's the speech that goes out. So breathing becomes more of the pure archetypal aspect, but the role of prayer, just like the role of speech, becomes that type of rhythm. The same way as I reach out my hand and I give something. Well, the question is, do I shove it into a person's hand? Or do I handle it gently? Or how does that person take it with all the symbolic aspects that are related? Quite interesting, we mentioned these 248 commandments. Uh, they're called Ramach, Reish Memchet. Uh, uh, and uh, it's interesting that they cover all the limbs of the body. And the rabbis make a very interesting notion that Abraham, the name, you know that Abraham's name was originally Abram, Aleph Bet Resh. That simply refers to the limb of the body. When his name was changed in Genesis 17 and the divine name He was added, this was understood to have mystical significance for those who practice. That is to say, when you add a spiritual dimension to the physical limbs, the body is transfigured into a focused spiritual being. But with the addition of the letter He, which comes out to the number five, you get 248. So without that, you're just raw flesh. You're just body. You're just embodiment. But the transfiguration of consciousness, which is divine mindfulness, transfigures this uh, into a spiritual uh, aspect. This is what the rabbis call the blessings. There are special blessings of Shemiah, the blessings of, these are called the blessings of Nehenin, the blessings of what you hear, thunder, voice, a new friend, uh, the blessing of Ri'iyah, what you see, and the blessing of Nehenin, what you take into your body. All of these become attunements to what comes to you in a specific way. Because when it comes to you in this specific way, it's event in the world that becomes now transfigured through the consciousness of rabbinic forms of prayer. It's quite interesting that when the mystics speculate, how in the world could a human being bless God? Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who does X. The mystics understand this quite differently. The word 
Blessing, Baruch in Hebrew, simply means genuflection. It means a kind of humble acknowledgement before the face of the divine gift, the gift in the world. But the rabbis understood this as the flowing of, as if water or light from a pool, from a brecha. And it flows down, one has to imagine, flowing down through the divine name that is utterly unsayable and unknowable, through, that's the tetragram, or what comes into English as Jehovah, through the name Elohim or Eloheinu, which is the God that rules the universe. And then there's a reference to what one benefits from. And that's always in the present tense. Who gives this? Who does this? Who hands this? So in other words, one, in the very course of coming in contact with the world, that has been developed in the course of the morning prayer, and then we drink something, we eat something, we see a friend, there is the blessing that begins to understand that this flow of possibility flows down into consciousness through all the unsayable dimensions of divinity, begins to take on embodied language, and then it's given to us as a permanent form of giving. For many mystics, for example, Nachmanides, again in the 13th century, this it's not simply focusing on this aspect as a spiritual consciousness and then one focuses uh, on the everyday, but they develop techniques of what we would call bifocal consciousness or bilateral consciousness. That is to say, when he says, how do you come to know the divine name and you write the inner name on one's inner mind, how do you go about the everyday, which they said to go about the, your business, your, about your everyday, and still be focused on God? So that becomes this highest ideal, not simply to be in prayer, which is then focused on the higher level, or not simply in the world, uh, in the physical sense, but to develop a bimodal consciousness so that one is, has so internalized focusing on higher spiritual qualities that one is able to see and receive and live in dynamic tension between the one and the other that's always changing. Now, if you've been listening carefully, you can see that Judaism is not simply what one would call from the religions of antiquity either a vita contemplativa, a contemplative withdrawn life, or a vita activa, an active life. It is a blend of the two, because what we're talking about is a meditative action, contemplative action, that as one goes through the world, one is focused on spiritual qualities and attentive to the things that come in, but has to do them in a very specific way. And it's this balance that we began with between the inner and the outer, the contemplativa, which is the inner mind, the activa, that it means it has to be expressed through the body or received by the body from the outside world, and that this is always changing, so that in the higher level of consciousness, and with this we'll conclude, what the mystics call gadlut demochin, what we call the expansiveness of mind. When one begins to develop a higher consciousness, the Jewish mystics call this what we call mind expansiveness, the gadlut demochin, as opposed to narrow-mindedness, narrow-focused, which is called katnut demochin. But what this means is that the outside becomes 
absorbed on the inside, and the inside is in the out. Now, it's not just at the highest level of this dynamism. It's not simply the inner and the outer, but the inner and the outer are so dynamically correlated that one finds the divine out in the world and the divine is then rediscovered uh, in the depth of the self. So with that, I'd like to conclude uh, and hopefully we can turn from that to some questions. Thank you. The question is, um, are there practices in Judaism that bring one back to the vicar? Um, uh, they're not exactly the same. The vicar in Islam is a kind of recollection of the mind back into its primordial state uh, with divinity uh, and the primordial teachings. Judaism particularly focuses on forms of memory that are archetypal in scripture. Uh, so, for example, among the six great forms of memory, the first would be to remember, because these are passages in which the word to remember appears in Scripture. One would be the Exodus. The Exodus, does, Exodus then becomes the recollection of the movement from self-enslavement to liberation, from narrow-mindedness to expansive-mindedness. There is the uh, issue of the golden calf, so that one moves from narrow-minded idolatry towards wide-mindedness. Um, these are largely focused on moments in biblical history that then are transformed from historical events into spiritual archetypes, so that Exodus becomes the archetype of freedom and the birth and the possibility of not being a, uh, an enslaved soul. Um, uh, the issue of the Sabbath becomes the recollection of the capacity to be silent, to be still, to let go. So while these do not take one into a primordial or pre-existent realm, they take historical moments, spiritualize them in what we would call today, from a Jungian point of view, into archetypes, but these archetypes become deep spiritual structures. Um, and that in that consciousness, one is brought back, in a certain sense, to a divine focus. So you were saying that the only way for us to really um, like combine our spiritual selves with the physical, everyday self is through prayer. Is there any other way that that's possible? Because there are many people that don't pray. Right. Uh, the... The, the, the techniques that I was trying to express is the way traditionally Judaism begins to focus on that. But I would say that even from within the framework of we were saying, you could begin to do that um, within your own experience. We talked about the breathing rhythm, right? The, uh, the Psalm, Psalm 150 says, Kol haneshamata haleliyah. And this way, um, uh, uh, every soul will praise God. The mystics understood this, kol nishima every breath. So there is this focusing on what one is doing with the breath as a kind of focusing technique. Uh, one could begin to uh, use specific images or a specific language that begin to direct the self. Um, 
But part of that is to do these in a regular and ritual manner so that they become deeply embedded within the consciousness so that when one sees another person speaking, one feels that that is not only another self who is the mirror of myself, but the breath that comes in or the light from the eyes is something that is transforming me and then I speak back out and you develop this kind of loop of consciousness. So I think that it's a question of finding something, if not in Jewish or Christian or Muslim ritual, something from a, um, a, um, a poem. Um, one, one of the last of the great uh, Duino elegies of Rilke, he says, perhaps we only came into the world to say house, to say flower, to say cloud, but to say it with absolute clarity. So the issue is how do you begin to develop that form of awareness of the eye and the ear so that you articulate flower and house and friend not just as vocables or syllables but really as um, a statement of one's entire being that one breathes in and hears. Okay. Did the uh, Jewish mystics use tarot and astrology as divination? Uh, they uh, did not use uh, tarot. Uh, we, uh, um, there were forms of astrology. These were forbidden in the 13th century by the rationalists, but actually we have notions that notions of astrological alignments already appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We don't know how, and they were related to certain s structures of the soul, so that the structure of the universe at the time of the birth of a certain body, already in the very early Dead Sea Scrolls from the earliest centuries, had this kind of what we call a homology or an alignment between the inner self and the outer self. And some of the, most, the greatest of the Jewish medieval philosophers, for example, Abraham Ibn Ezra, developed techniques like this. But they were considered quite esoteric, um, and they were not part of the common tradition. Uh, and they were less in terms of divination so, so as much as uh, beginning to understand how the structure of the cosmos relates to the structure of the soul. My question relates to the story of the bedraggled beggar okay. uh, at the beginning of your, your speech. Sure. And wouldn't he be, you know, wouldn't his pendulum be swinging too far to the spiritual side? Because it seems as if he's drifted off, you know, so far into this notion of beauty that he's kind of forgetting about the rest of, you know, the physical world. Absolutely. Uh, and in this, in this particular case, it's not the golden mean, right? There's nothing like the golden mean of Maimonides here. There is, uh, even Maimonides says there are certain times that one has to swing very far to one side or the other. So, for example, in terms of anger uh, or in pride, they can't find the golden mean. You have to swing to the other side. In this particular case, we're in a spiritual universe that made a very stark distinction between spirit and matter, between desire and eros of a spiritual quality. And it's trying to indicate how a person changes. And one of the ways that the person changes is by the absoluteness of the focus, um, so that the same energies that would go in one way can now go in another. So you're absolutely right 
to say this, but what is important here for uh, those who would recite a narrative like this um, is how, what is the relationship between mind and body, right? Um, that, and as we've been seeing over and over again, um, the, the mind and body can be seen as the inner, outer split, or if one is too much on one side or too much on the other, um, or, the, or one's mind wanders and one is not in control of what's done with the body. In this particular case, there is an attempt to swing very far to the side of the spiritualization. That comes in through the heritage. Uh, some of you may know this through, um, through Christianity, but it comes in particularly through Aristotle and the, um, the, the devaluing of the senses. Um, that's often why for some of the philosophers, like Maimonides, old age was considered um, particularly valuable because as desire lessens, or as one is lying in one's bed, one begins to focus on those techniques. So you have to understand this in terms of the pendulum, uh, an absolute pendulum of ideal in the Middle Ages, and we would probably want to deal with this in a quite different way and not absolutize those, but be able to learn from that uh, technique as well. I'm somewhat familiar with a variety of forms of meditation. I was wondering uh, how many of those have analogous practices in Judaism. It seems clearly that there's a um, a, a focus meditation, one, one particular concentration meditation. My sense is that there's also what some people term mindfulness meditation, where there's basically a non-judgmental awareness of whatever's going on, whatever sensation brings up. So that's one of the questions. And, and also, sometimes complementary, comp, there's a complementary meditation where I've called a loving-kindness meditation, where somebody um, really imagines a scene or something that brings forth compassion and then does well wishes and then spreads those well wishes and those feelings to other people where that might not necessarily be natural. So is there an, uh, analogous things to eat, practice to each of those in Judaism? On, on, on one uh, of those, um, uh, since we've been using I, the term mindfulness, uh, Judaism would not practice what we call it, any kind of a blank screen or non-judgmental. Everything that's happening has to be related to. But there were techniques that begin with the ancient Stoics. In Greek, it's called ataraxia. It comes in through the Stoics and through the Sto uh, through the Stoics through the Suf through Sufi uh, practice, and then for into Judaism, it's called um, hishtavut. That is to say, uh, uh, what we call equilibrium. That is, um, so it's not that you don't. In this particular case, the technique would be non-judgmental in the sense not that I don't relate to things, but that you get to a state in which praise and blame would be of equal value. Those you are so centered on a certain form uh, of divine centeredness that praise and blame, either coming from the self or coming from outside, uh, don't disturb the uh, inner self. And there are many quite striking narratives that appear in uh, Islamic and Jewish sources about that. But that goes back very early to the ancient Stoics. So it's, 
Um, the t in all of these cases, the different techniques, of course, depend on different traditions and different developments, and sometimes they overlap in different ways. But I think um, for the Jewish practice, which is so concerned to be aware of the world that one hasn't created. The world is a positive entity and people, but then the question is, what do you do with the worlding of the world that comes in upon you and how does that affect you? Um, this would be this issue of what we would call equanimity or hishtavut uh, or this kind of balance. So it's not judgment in the way that you're talking about it, but it is a kind of release from... Um, the uh, attempt to try to transform the world into something beneficial for the self or to see what that external world is that would help the self and to try to find a kind of calm. So that's one form of calm. There are other forms of calm that would develop um, as well. So at least that would be the way that takes this particular expression. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.